Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Well, good morning. Oh, perfect. It was a little tougher crowd in the early service. Had me quite fearful. Uh, it's good to be with you. I, um, you need to know that I brag on your church and on your students in a lot of different places. I, I just, I, I love what you do as a, as a family, as a congregation, and I, I regularly brag on Pleasant View and what that dis, does in the lives of your students as part of their spiritual growth um, and, and discipleship, and you produce some amazing young people. I know you had some go to Kaleo. I have had a long-term relationship with Camp Quanos where Kaleo takes place, and they love your students. And uh, you just need to know that. It's, uh, I wish I could bottle what you guys have um, and give it away or sell it. I don't care, but I just wish I could bottle it. It's, it's a fabulous thing. And I'm glad I get to be a part of it. Thanks for embracing me. Um, I, I enjoy the internet, and I can waste a monumental time on the internet doing just inane things. And not long ago, I was just trolling on the internet, and I just looked up mission statements. And I, some company mission statements came up. Let me share some of them with you. Uh, it, it, they design these statements. They go to great effort to design these statements to uh, talk about what, what guides them, how they operate, what they do. Uh, one of them is this, to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Any ideas? Oh, Facebook. That's what Facebook's mission is. That's why they exist. This is a company that many of you would be aware of, I'm sure, to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. Coca-Cola. There you go. There you go. They are there to inspire you and uh, make a difference. There you go. Um, this, This one, many of you would know, to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person one cup and one neighborhood at a time. In the early service, someone said Tim Hortons. Close, Starbucks. Starbucks is to inspire and nurture the human spirit. Now, I have no idea how you do that with coffee, but whatever. Um, We save people money so they can live better. Walmart, okay. Do they have that up in their store somewhere? You guys are just really good at guessing. Um, To help people around the world plan and have the perfect trip. TripAdvisor, an internet company. Helping parents, uh, parents, not parents, helping pets live longer, happier and healthier lives through proper nutrition and care. Purina. Nothing like a little puppy chow. Um, To help customers improve and maintain their biggest asset, their home is Lowe's, that's their mission statement, and making the whole planet feel better, one bottle at a time. Naked juice, has anyone had naked juice? (laughs) 
I have got to get my, I don't know if it means you have to drink it naked, but I, which would not help the world at all. But I, I've got to get me some of this naked juice. Uh, one I just came across this morning is this, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church. That's you guys. And uh, the, the point of mission statements is they're intended to guide and focus everything the corporation does. A number of years ago, a mentor of mine uh, challenged me by asking me, well, what is your personal mission statement? Personal mission statement? I, I don't have a personal mission statement. And he really challenged me to develop a personal mission statement, that, that statement that guides what, what I do, uh, what, that, that helps focus everything in my life. What is your mission statement? And so for me, a number of years ago, I came up with one that I thought was pretty good. It's morphed a bit, but uh, it, its first iteration was this, love God, love people, and help encourage and motivate others to do the same. I, I took it out of Matthew 22. I thought that was pretty good. Jesus said that's kind of the bottom line. But then over the years, it's, it's morphed a little bit. And it, I changed it a while ago, a few years ago, to be this, uh, to be a yoke-wearing, grace-dispensing, gorilla-loving Jesus follower and help motivate and encourage others to do the same. Now, some of you are going, that makes no sense. It's packed with meaning for me. It probably does make no sense to you, but I'm not displaying it anywhere. It's for me. It's to help focus the passions and direction and, and the purpose of my life. And, and this idea of being a yoke-wearing Christian carries with it the idea of being fully surrendered to Jesus, where he said, take my yoke upon you. I want to be a Jesus follower who's fully surrendered to him. And then this idea of being a grace-dispensing, gorilla-loving Jesus follower. Uh, it occurred to me that Jesus was an amazing lover of people, and part of that love was reactive, and part of it was proactive. The proactive side of his love, or the reactive side of his love, rather, was, was being a grace-dispenser. And he would dispense this grace from God to people who were difficult and people who'd wounded him. And that was the way, it was a re the reactive side of his love. But then there was a proactive side of his love, which was kind of like guerrilla warfare love, not the hoo 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 gorilla in the forest, the, the army type gorillas, the fighters. And, and it, would, he, he would, it, it was targeted and specific and one-on-one, -on -one, and it was almost hit and run sometimes. And people just were in awe of the way he practically loved people. So I want to be a yoke-wearing, grace-dispensing, gorilla-loving Jesus follower and help and encourage and motivate others to do the same. I work with a number of youth pastors in, um, in a mentorship kind of role, and one of them, we were talking about life mission statements, and uh, one of them, a guy named Kirk, he, said, he came back after thinking about it for a while, and he said, I've come up with my life mission statement. It says, it's to become more like Jesus in character and behavior and help others to do the same. Isn't that good? Man requires no explanation. A mission statement is the grid that guides your life, the choices and activities uh, of your life. You, you, you put them through that grid to see this, does this work. And I, this morning I would like to look at a lesser known character in the Old Testament. He actually has a, Bible, or a book of the Bible named after him, but he doesn't even appear in the old, his own book until chapter 7. 
His name's Ezra, and so if you wanted to turn to it, you're certainly welcome to. Some of you will have a difficult time finding it. It's right after the historical books. It's a historical book too, so right after Second Chronicles, you'd be able to find Ezra. And we're gonna sort of jump in and just look at the very first verse there, chapter seven. It says this, many years later, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. And then it goes on for the next uh, five and a half verses to look at his pedigree, all the way back to Aaron. He was the great, 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 a few more great grandson of Aaron. And then in verse uh, six, it says this, this Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the, law, uh, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king, king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the people of Israel, as well as some of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had arranged to leave Babylon on April the 8th, the first day of the new year, and he arrived in Jerusalem on August 4th, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. The Bible tells us that God's hand of blessing was on Elijah because he had made this decision. He had actually developed, I believe, a mission statement for his life. And the mission statement was very simply this. It was, he determined, he chose, he made this decision to study God's word, to obey it, and then to teach that to the Israelites. I believe it was his personal mission statement, studying and obeying God's law and helping others do the same. And it's interesting to me that he, he was just a guy. He was a scribe. He wasn't in full-time ministry. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a priest. He was just a guy. But somewhere along the line, he decided that he was going to focus his life on these three things. Understanding, studying God's word, obeying it, and then helping others to do the same. And so what I want to do this morning is just spend a little bit of time unpacking his life mission statement for us to think about a little bit. The first was this, he determined to study the law of the Lord. I think we can easily miss the point. This was not about acquiring an intellectual knowledge. It wasn't simply about gaining a boatload of facts about God. Ezra was pursuing intimacy with the God of the universe. He was mining the law, not just to know what the law said, he wanted to know the lawgiver. It was what was behind the law. You see, intimacy is not, about, is not just knowing about someone. Uh, I have never really before been interested in US politics, but I have a fascination with this guy named Donald Trump. He is a, tra it, it feels like, to me, like he's a bit of a train wreck. It's hard to look away. And my most common search is Trump news. And I've got a button on my phone, I can just push it and it will take me to the latest Trump news. And it is just, I just don't seem to be able to look away. I know a lot about Donald Trump. I have read a lot of stuff about Donald Trump. I may have read more stuff about him than any other person other than Jesus for crying out loud. But I would not say I'm intimate with Donald Trump. 
You see, there's a difference between knowing about someone and being intimate with someone. Intimacy is about knowing and being known. It's not just about knowing someone. And I believe when it says that Ezra determined to study the law of the Lord, it was about finding out who the lawgiver was. It wasn't just about gaining more facts, gaining more instruction. He was pursuing intimacy with God. In Luke chapter 10, there's one of my favorite stories. I have so many favorite stories in the New Testament because I have a vivid imagination. And it's a story uh, that starts at verse 38 of Luke chapter 10, and it says this, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come help me. Now, I, I can imagine what this is like. Jesus is coming to your house. You want it to be nice, like we got a dust. I don't know what your house looks like. Uh, we were at a family camp a number of years ago and uh, one lady was sort of complaining because her, her cleaning lady was gonna be in Europe for a month. What was she going to do? And without even thinking about it, my wife said, well, just live in the filth like the rest of us. Um, that, you know, if Jesus is coming to our house, it's gonna require a little bit of cleanup time. Uh, you know, there's stuff that needs to be put away, even if it's just thrown into a drawer for now, that's fine. We need to dust, we need to clean, and we need to cook. Jesus is coming, and he's not just coming by himself, he's bringing all his friends. We're gonna have to borrow pots for crying out loud, but we're gonna get the cook going, we're gonna get the stuff going in the kitchen, and I can imagine Martha, the oldest sister, she's organizing everybody, Lazarus, Lazarus, Mary, and she's organizing everybody, and, and, and when he comes, like, you want it to be good food. You don't, you know, you can't just slap a hot dog, well, there's pork in that. Uh, you, you can't just give him a cheese sandwich for crying out loud. You know, you, you want at least all beef wieners in your hot dogs, but uh, you want something nice for Jesus. And so Martha's busy, and Jesus arrives with this crowd, and so maybe she says to her sister, okay, here's some drinks. Go give Jesus and the herd some drinks. And Lazarus is out there in the living room, and Mary takes out, or maybe in the courtyard, and Mary takes out the drinks. And, and then instead of coming back to continue to help, she sits down. And she just sits there. And I can picture Martha peeking around the corner of the kitchen. That lazy, good for nothing. And, and, and doors are closing on the cupboards a little harder than they need to. And pots are landing on the cooking surface just a little harder than they need to. Stirring is a very vigorous stirring. Very vigorous. And, uh, you know, she, she is... She is trying to get her sister's attention, and there's huffing and puffing, and, and finally, she's completely had it. Her hair's a mess, her apron's on sideways, she's got flour on her face. She comes out into the room and stands in front of Jesus and says, won't you tell my sister to help me? Now, the veins are popping out in her forehead and her neck, her face is red, don't mess with that person. They will explode. And what does Jesus say? It says this in verse 41. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken from her. And the story ends there because they don't put swear words in the Bible. <laughs> because I think Mary lost it, to be quite honest with you. I don't think she went, oh yeah, right. I think there was a Mary explosion, or pardon me, a Martha explosion. I don't think she just went, 
Oh, yes, you're right. I see now. What? Lazy. Lazy is better. You want to eat, dude? I think, and, and he was saying this to her. Your service is good, but I want your intimacy. You see, Martha was about doing stuff. She was about service. Mary's passion was about being with Jesus. It was about intimacy. And, and service is important. Don't get me wrong. But God wants my intimacy. He wants my relationship more than my service. And it's possible to get so busy doing things for Jesus that we have no time to spend with Jesus. And when our service crowds out our intimacy, it's nothing short of idolatry. Jesus wants us. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 23 and 24, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast of their wisdom or the powerful boast of their power or the rich boast of their riches, but let those who wish to boast, but those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in those things. Did you catch the only thing that there's any bragging points for? Intimacy. Ezra was about knowing God. I believe he was pursuing intimacy with God. The second part was Ezra determined to obey. Now obey and obedience are not warm, fuzzy words. They're not the kind of words we hear and go, oh yeah, say it again. It just speaks of rules and restrictions. Bring it on. No, most of us chafe at this obedience piece. Both of my girls, their very first word was no. This is not a big obedience word. Come here, no. Oh, you little brat. Uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't drip with obedience. My oldest daughter, as I recall, her very first sentence, we were in a hurry to get out of the house, and, and she was trying to put her shoes on, and she was having a terrible time, and, and so I wanted to help her, so I said, let me help you. I went to grab her shoes. She pulled it away and said, my do itself. Just a longer version of no. From the time we're born, we chafe with this idea of obedience. The difficulty is, that that is what we're called to. When I think of obedience, I have a number of heroes in my life who just are, for me, obedience heroes. One's a woman named Rose. I don't even know Rose's last name. Um, I've only met her once. And if she was in this room, I probably wouldn't recognize her. But she's a hero to me. Uh, when I was a youth pastor with the Christian and Missionary Alliance churches, I... Um, we, we, every year, we're, we're big missions people. We're Christian and Missionary Alliance. So we would have a missions conference. It would start on a Sunday and it would go to the next Sunday. And every night of the week, there'd be meetings. And when we had youth, that meant that we would take these poor, dear missionaries. Some of them had been on the field for, you know, 20 years or 16 years. And, and they, they come back and they're supposed to travel around to all the Alliance churches and motivate people for missions. And, and so we stand these poor people who've been out of the culture for, you know, who knows how long in front of a room full of junior high and senior high kids and they're supposed to stand up there and motivate them to love Jesus so much they'll give their lives on a mission field somewhere. And it's brutal. And so we tried so many different things and I finally found the very best way to do it was to just have them tell their story about how they came to know Jesus and how God called them into ministry, missions. missions. 
And so um, every year they'd give us a profile of the missionaries they were going to send to us. This one year they were sending two. Stephen Rose. And uh, so I looked at the profiles, and Steve was young. He was just his first uh, term on the field. He'd been in Mexico City. It was his first term. He'd back for a year uh, with his family. He had a young family. He was cool. He was athletic. Uh, I, I knew he'd be able to communicate with my kids. And, uh, you know, they would ask things like, because they would be billeted in homes, you know, what kind of bed do you prefer? And, and what kind of food do you like to eat? And, you know, Steve's bed was whatever. And food, anything that's not moving fast. And, you know, what, when do you like to get up, you know, late? And, uh, okay, he's my kind of guy. And then I'm reading Roses. She'd been on the mission field for 12 years at that point, as I recall. And uh, what kind of bed do you like? Hard. What kind of food? Very restricted kind of food diet. Um, you know, what time do you like to get up? Early. Okay, she's going to be the early morning prayer missionary. I can tell that's good. Um, and I just thought, oh, she sounds like she hasn't laughed for a long time. Just the kind of person to stand in front of your students. So I hatched a plan. Here was the plan. We're going to put Rose up first. She's going to share her 20, 15 to 20 minutes, whatever long it's going to be of her story. And then we're going to get Steve up. He's going to communicate, bat clean up. And what we always did was we would allow the kids to ask questions. And Rose got up, and I kind of was going, oh, God, help her. And she shared her story. And broke my heart. Wow. She shared about how she grew up in a completely non-religious home far, far away from Jesus. And one summer, one of the neighbors in the community had a backyard Bible club and they invited her and she went and that's where she met Jesus. And so that family started inviting her to go to church with them and she did. And sometime in elementary school, she sat through a missions conference and she heard God call her into full-time cross-cultural service. And so she said yes to missions. And she grew up with that call on her life in junior high and high school And when it came time for post-secondary education, she knew God had called her to be a missionary, so her plan was to go to Bible school. And when she broke that plan to her parents, her parents told her that if she went to a university, they would pay for everything. But if she dare go to a Bible school, they would fully cut her off. Not a penny. But she knew God had called her, so she went to Bible school. Without the support or blessing of her family, and she was going through Bible school in her third year. She met and started to fall in love with a young man who was called to be a pastor. And they were great together. And in the fourth year, he proposed. And she said yes and immediately felt no peace because she knew they had conflicting calls. She was convinced that God had called her to be a missionary and serve in a cross-cultural context. And God had clearly called him to be a pastor in the North American context. So after a couple of weeks, she went to her new fiance and said, we can't do this. I can't do this. Because I can't follow God's call on my life. And have you follow your God, call on God's life. And so we broke up. She broke up. And they, uh, she ended up getting her master's and she served in a, really tiny little community translating the Bible into a language that was for a very small group of people who spoke that language. She'd been at it for 12 years at that point. It's a stunning story. 
when students were allowed to ask questions, the first question, and most of the questions actually were for Rose. And the first question was this, do you ever regret not marrying that man? And she talked about how um, lonely she was. She talked about how she really wished she had a soulmate, somebody to share the work and life with. But she said, no, she didn't regret it at all. And she said, I'd rather be lonely and obedient than disobedient and have company. She's one of my obedience heroes. Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 15 said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. 1421 said, those who accept my commands and obey them, they are the ones who love me. John 1423, all who love me will do what I say. John 1424, anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. In 1 John chapter five, God says that loving him means keeping his commands and his commands are not burdensome. You see, obedience is God's love language. Our obedience is how we practically love God. But it can be so hard sometimes. Uh, I mentioned one of the privileges I have in my life is I you just hang around youth ministry long enough and get old enough, people think you know something. So I, I get the opportunity to mentor some youth pastors. And I have a couple groups of youth pastors. We agree to meet for a day, a month, for a period of 14 to 16 months, and we study the life of Jesus together and apply what we're learning to our ministries. And uh, one of the guys, this guy named Steve, um, uh, ended up coming on the wrong day. We'd had to change some dates around, and he got confused. He ended up showing up at my house on the wrong day, and I invited him in to chat. And it ended up being a two-hour conversation. And he's a Christian Missionary Alliance guy, and in our denom, uh, we have a three-year process to become ordained as a minister in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and anybody who's licensed has to go through that process. And it can be a grueling process. It, it uh, requires a number of papers and a number of books and some exams, and, and then the final is a, an oral exam where you have to kind of answer questions on theology and practice and a number of different things. It can be quite grueling. And Steve was in that process, and he was coming up for his oral exam, which he'd already been uh, deferred once because he um, didn't do well. So they said, you need to come back again. And he was really struggling with this being imposed on him. He didn't see the value of it. And, and uh, we, we talked about it for quite a while. And at one point, um, because he was chafing against the authority in his life that was over him, I said to him, you know what, Steve, for a lot of years I've said, show me a student who's rebelling against their parents, and I'll show you someone who cannot obey God. You see, obedience or rebellion is an issue of the heart. And uh, we can't be rebellious to the constituted authorities that God has placed over us and fully surrendered to him. We cannot be disobedient to them and obedient to God. We just can't. And he was really quiet. And I thought I'd probably deeply offended him. And after a little bit, he looked up and he said, I have a problem, don't I? And to his credit, he acknowledged that he had a heart, rebellious heart problem. 
And uh, he repented of that and, and is working to live in a place of obedience. You know, years ago, God convicted me of my driving habits. Uh, you know, the speed limits really are really an imposition, right? Okay, I see some heads nodding. Um, you know, and, and everyone knows they give you at least 10 kilometers over, right? Like everyone knows what they really mean when they say 100 is like 110. You know, they, they, they'll give you 10. And, and everyone does it anyway, and, and you know, it's perfectly safe, and what's the big deal? It's such a little thing. I, I, I've made all the arguments. But God really convicted me one day. I'd been snowboarding with a friend, and I was coming down off the mountain, and it is a gravel road off the mountain, then onto a two-lane highway that's 80 kilometers an hour, ridiculous speed for that road. It should be at least 100. Um, sign me up, I'll change the signs. And, and it should be 100. And everyone, everyone speeds, everyone speeds along there. And so I knew there were a group of people behind me. I, I thought, well, I'll just set it 10 over, and... Um, I, you know, normally I'd pull over to the side if somebody wanted to pass, but there's gravel there and that would not be nice. So I said it at 110 and I just say to Jesus, I've got an hour and a half till I get home. And I just love, if there's anything you want to say to me, I want to hear it. And, uh, I sense God say, you know, I love you. Right. And it's like, yeah, I do. That's awesome. And I remember saying, and God, I love you too. And then God's Holy Spirit reminded me of John 14. If you love me, obey me. And I said, well, Jesus, you don't understand. You didn't have a car. Let me explain to you. <laughs> I, I need to explain you the problem here. There's, you see that line of lights behind me? All those people, you know, I, I, they're, they're, no, I'm holding them up. You see that? There's a whole line of them, and I'm actually speeding, and, and I can't pull over to the side because I'd pepper their car with gravel, and, and that wouldn't be, you wouldn't like that, I don't think. That wouldn't be a very loving thing to do to them and their cars, and, and I was explaining to God why I needed to speed. And then I sensed God say to me, Randy, why is it you care more about what people you will never meet think of you than what I think of you? And that's when God spoke to me about my speeding. And I've had people say, <clears throat> Donna, my wife, uh, do you really think it's a big deal? Like, honestly, do you think it's a big deal? Like, do you think God cares about speeding? And I've said to her, if it's such a big deal, why is it so hard? If it's such a small deal, rather, why is it so hard? If it's a small deal, it should be easy. But we seem to chafe at this authority in our lives. Now, I'm not trying to be God's Holy Spirit. I don't care how you drive. It doesn't matter to me. And I've had people say to me, you know, that just sounds like an unhealthy legalism. And I think it could become that, or it could be an act of surrender and worship, because that's what obedience is, every time. Saying yes to God every time is an act of surrender and, and worship. And I've come to the conclusion, I'll never experience God's blessing on my life through disobedience to him. Ezra experienced God's blessing because of his commitment to intimacy and obedience. But then it goes on to say this, that he was determined to teach those decrees and regu regulations to the people of Israel. 
He helped wanting, he, he helped, he wanted to help others learn what he had learned. He was inviting people to join him on the journey of following God. Ezra was about making disciples. And if you've hung around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has called us to make new disciples baby Jesus followers, and see them grow to maturity. A mentor, a friend of mine, a guy named Dan Spader, uh, a little while ago shared some stats he discovered about churches in North America. He discovered that 85% of churches, evangelical churches in North America are plateaued or declining in attendance. They're not growing. They're they're stuck where they are or they're they're, um, deteriorating. That means there's 15% that are growing. 13.8% of the churches in North America are growing by transfer growth. That means that people who are already believers are coming from other churches to their church, and that's how they're growing. That means only 2.2% of churches are growing by making new disciples, by conversion growth. It's interesting to me that Jesus was about the idea that we'd be making new disciples. And a number of years ago, as I've been wrestling with this in my own life, the thought occurred to me, one of the signs of maturity in the animal kingdom is reproduction. When animals are mature, they reproduce. And and that's the most natural thing in the world. And as I've been wrestling with this, I've come to the conclusion that Christian maturity involves making new disciples reproducing what Jesus has done in my life in the lives of others who don't know him and helping them get to maturity so they can reproduce in the lives of others who don't know him what God has done in their life. And as I was wrestling with that a number of years ago, it occurred to me, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And I came to the conclusion, Randy Carter is not known as a friend of sinners. I have lots of friends, but they're all believers. And I thought, is, how, how am I going to make new disciples if I have no friends who don't know Jesus? And God really began to convict me of this. Donna was much further down the road than I was, but I, I, I got desperate. I got to get some new friends. I've got to make some friends who don't know Jesus, so I have even the possibility of making some new disciples. And um, I, I didn't know what to do. How do you do that? So I, I took a cue from little kids in a playground. You've seen little kids in a playground, right? They see somebody they don't know. They walk up to them and go, hey, do you want to be friends? <laughs> okay, it works for them. I'll give it a try. Taking my cues from little kids in playgrounds. And so I knew of a guy that we had some acquaintance. We weren't really friends. We were acquaintances. And... Um, his name's Bruce, so I called him up and said, hey, Bruce, I was wondering if you'd be willing to do lunch with me sometime. He said, sure. And so we met for lunch, and we had a great time, and, and it was getting close to time to pay, and he wanted to pay. And I said, well, no, I should pay because I invited you, and I actually want something from you. He said, really? What do you want? I said, well, Bruce, I have a theory. In life. I have a lot of theories in lives. One of them is computers are just boxes full of demons, um, but that's not the one I shared with him at the time. Uh, another one of my theories is that every man needs six close friends. 
because when I die, I'm gonna need six people to carry the box and it would be nice if the guys carrying the box had some idea of who was inside. And he laughed and I said, I, I don't know you well, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we might be able to become those kinds of friends for each other. Ecclesiastes friends. I didn't say that to him, but you good church people might know that. Have each other's backs, know each other's hearts. And he, I said, why don't we, if you're willing, why don't we meet for lunch for the next four months or something and, and see if this is going anywhere. If it does, great. If it doesn't, then that's fine. That's cool. And so we started meeting for lunch and, and we became close friends. In a very short amount of time, and I think he was only in Calgary for about a year and a half, maybe two years before he and his wife moved to St. Albert, just north of Edmonton. And uh, the last day that we were in Calgary together, we were sitting in McDonald's crying because of the depth of our friendship. He hasn't accepted Jesus yet, but boy, we've had some amazing conversations. And he's not a project, he's a friend. But we've maintained a relationship and he and his wife have become good couple friends of ours. We went on a vacation for two weeks together with our friends. And I thought, this is either going to cement our friendship or blow it to kingdom come. Living for two weeks together in a foreign country, this will be interesting. It didn't blow it up. Bruce and Val are some of our dearest friends and they're, they're not really close to Jesus yet. But we continue to pray. We, we, we just have decided we've got to be places where we can meet people who don't know Jesus if we're going to make disciples who are new disciples. We started doing solstice parties. I think four years ago we started. And uh, we just, we don't know how to have parties with people who don't know Jesus. Like we don't know how to do that. Church people, you come on time and everything. People who don't know Jesus, they don't come on time. It's crazy. And uh, so we didn't know what to do, so we just decided we invite all of our neighbors to a solstice party. We have one in June, we have one in December, the one in June is in our backyard, the one in December is in our, in our home, and just invite them to come so we get to know them, and we started to become friends with them. Now, none of them accepted Jesus either, but we pray for them. Ezra was about inviting others to join him in the pursuit of God, intimacy with God and obedience to him. He was making God followers. He was making disciples. I love that it says, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. It says that twice in the passage. And I love that it tells us why the gracious hand of God was on him. Because of his life mission statement. That he had made the decision. He had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. He decided to pursue intimacy with God and obedience to God and then invite others to do that with him. What's your mission statement? What is it you're about? What is it that guides and directs your life. I would encourage you, if you've never made a mission statement, to begin to prayerfully ask God, what is my mission statement? What am I about? Let me pray. God, I'm, I'm thankful for just a guy 
a, a guy named Ezra who somehow you were at work in his life and he said, okay, God, I want my life to be about intimacy with you, obedience to you, and then inviting people to join me in that. Now, that's a pretty cool template. Would you help us in the days, hours and days ahead, to think through, what is my mission statement? Why am I here, God? And then would you help us to live that out in a way that honors you? And may we too know your gracious hand on our lives as a result. Thanks, Jesus. I love you. Amen. I didn't know I was supposed to dismiss everybody in the first service. I'm surprised they're still, they were not still here, but <laughs> Lord bless you. Thanks for coming. Would you remember us at camp this week? Pray for us. And again, I love First Baptist. Thanks for coming to church this morning.